podcast podcast the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week i am one of your hosts jeff better known as friend of Peepish. and i'm your other host emmett better known as poor quentin and welcome to the 165th episode of the not a cast titled say yes to the dress an analysis of a storm of swords sansa 2 in which good guy or girl sir saint lancer decides to give sansa a beautiful dress for no reason whatsoever, which is just simple generosity. You love to see it. Heartwarming, inspirational, a perfect tale of good Americans helping out each other. It's just everything that Jeff loves to read, <laughs> if Jeff read, which of course he doesn't. Uh, never. never. <laughs> and we're very happy to welcome on to the Nauticast our guest for this episode. Please welcome Sarah Skilton. Thanks so much for coming on. Hello. Thank you so, so much for having me. As I was mentioning to you guys, uh, this podcast in particular really helped get me through the pandemic and uh, just kept me feeling less isolated throughout all the tribulations of the last uh, 18 months or so. And I do have to say, it's kind of funny that I've I've gotten to this point right now in my life because I first learned about A Song of Ice and Fire from this New Yorker article, probably in like 2010 or 2011, that mm. focused on the fans' frustrations with having to wait for dance. And I remember <laughs> reading it and just being like, ha ha, those poor suckers, I'll never read this series, I'll never get sucked in and, you know, cut to now and just like, damn it, you know, it just <laughs> One it got of us. me, the One show of us. got me Whoop. and then the series got me, so here we are, I've, I've, joined the poor suckers <laughs> you're probably wondering how i got here but yes no that's that's an excellent story. i actually do know that article that you're talking about it came out in march or march 2011 right as george was finishing up a dance with dragons yes i think it was called george's detractors or something like that i don't i don't remember but i did read the article which um was a good article but yeah that's that's funny you know now we're here in 2021 uh waiting for the winds of winter which is coming out next week or maybe the week after no probably oh, yeah, but for um sure. Absolutely. Yeah. George is hard to work at it. <clears throat> I'm not cynical. Anyways, yes, but it, it, we are so happy to have you on for this episode to talk about this episode and, of course, to talk about your new book, which we'll, go, of course, get into at the end of this episode. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Sir Keith J., Master Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaester Doom, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscombe, Scarlet, the Other Red Woman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Harold the Golden Tooth, Master the Baneford, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, Lord Jake Assisted to the Head of the King, Lady Zena Valyria, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Warden of the East, Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, Blumenta Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Tits Dent, the Trogged Light Warrior, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's Favorite Stand, Herald of Sharon, Bastard Chromatica, Exalter Black Lives, and Shvener of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Thems, and the Nauticast, Non Binary, Not an Army, Hodover, the Wave for Tewell, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H Town, Veneris of House Quarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Award, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portrait of the, Re- Portrait of the Realm, Lady Rizzo of the Seven Kingdoms, Leonard Pates, Makeup Drawings of the Michelangelo, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter Kin of the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady, Mi- Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Harrenhal. Hold up, the holder of cups. Sir Tim, the knight who's guided by voices. Lord Nick, 
Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Day, and Prince Raker Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Joe Snow, King of the, Metro, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt S., Future Matt S., the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warriors of the South, and Patriot of Free, Wheeling Bisexuals, Lady Jamisa, She, who suggests the coconuts migrate, Lord Christoph of Arendelle, official Ice Master Deliverer, the Valiant Pungent Reindeer King, Keeper of Feisty Pants, and Prince Consort to his Ginger Sweet Love Queen Anna, Lord Sir Septon Ruthers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, War of the Kingswood, and the Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Nons II, Lord Tyler, the Prince that Promises to Wait Patiently for the Winds Winter, Lord D.B., Sister Winter, Ho- Sister Winter, Hopeful Romantic and Unrepentant Shipper, Lord Monsef, and the Severed Head of a Targaryen Prince Rotting on the Council Walls. Thank you to all of our Not a Small Counselors. Thank you, Counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' novels, histories, interviews, the Winston Sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Guilty Undertaker, a Sworn Sword patron, who asks, How deep do you think Sibelle Spicer's involvement in planning the Red Wedding was? We know that she took steps to prevent Jane from getting pregnant. However, I'm skeptical of the idea that the whole marriage between Jane and Rob was plotted in advance. To do this, Sibelle would have needed to know that Rob would attack the crag, that he would be wounded, that Jane would be able to seduce him, and most crucially, that Rob would not do what many would do in his position, refuse to marry Jane even after betting her. It seems far more likely to me that Rob and Jane's marriage came as much of a shock to Sibelle as it did to Kat. She realized that Rob was likely to lose his war and that it would go very badly for House Westerling if he did, which prompted her to reaffirm her house's allegiance to the Lannisters, perhaps embellishing the facts of what happened to do so. If Sibelle is, if Sibelle is to be the POV of the Winds of Winter prologue, as some, of, as some have suggested, we may get more insight into the exact circumstances of her deal with Tywin. She may also get her own red wedding. It would be very like George to make us hate a character and then have them killed in a horrifying fashion. <laughs> what do you think, Jeff? At, at what point in the process do you think Sibel became involved? This is such a hard question. And the reason why it's a hard question mm-hmm. is, you know, in the next Tyrion chapter, we're going to find out that Tyrion is very suspicious that Tywin is not super fucking pissed at the, at the Spicers and the Westerlings for, you know, betraying him, quote unquote. So... That leads many fans, to include myself, to believe that there is some sort of coordination between Lady Sabelle and Tywin Lannister in the Red Keep. The problem is, how do you coordinate that exactly when, of course, the Northmen hold the crag and Tywin is in the Red Keep? So you have to assume that the Maester is sending messages to the Red Keep. But how would he do that if the Northmen are holding the castle? Again, there's some weirdnesses about the timeline and George kind of fudges it a little bit, in my opinion, as he does with a lot of these kind of things where, you know, as we talked about in our, our episode about Edmure Tully versus Rob Stark, you know, there there is a, a fair degree of like, uh, this doesn't actually make a lot of sense when you really like de- delve down into the details. And I think that's this that could be said to, about this event of Sibel Spicer and what her involvement in playing the Red Wedding was. I I mean, I think we've talked somewhat in the past about whether there's this kind of general message to the Westerlands lords that as soon as Tywin Lannister heard about these attacks that are occurring in the Westerlands from the north and that he might have sent instructions or messages to those remaining bannermen that were left in the Westerlands. Because we do know that the crag was not the first place that was attacked by Robb Stark because that would happen first, of course, at Oxcross after they passed the Golden Tooth. So, and the crag seemed to be, seems to be have been probably the last and final attack 
among the castles that were being un- that came under siege from the Northmen there, because that is the place we find out from um, from a Clash of Kings Catlin Five that uh, that's or Catlin Six rather that, that that is that place is under attack, and I think that was probably the last place that it happened. And that point, we know that Tywin is moving out to the west or trying to get out to the west and cross the fords. So maybe they were able to get birds out. And then again, like there's some weirdnesses too, because I think about like and it just gets like super fucking nerdy. But I, I think about like. You know, when, when the Northmen came outside of, uh, of the Twins in a Game of Thrones, how the instructions were to shoot down every bird that was flying out of that castle itself. Probably similar instructions were being given to the Northern soldiers that are besieging the castle. I don't know, man. It, it's so weird. Like some of, some of these specific, um, the details of how the, how the Westerlings and, and Sibel became involved with the Red Wedding. But it is clear when we get to A Feast for Crows that there was a degree of coordination between Sibel Spicer and Tywin Lannister. And I am curious, if Sibel is the point of view for the Winds of Winter prologue, which is a possibility, I guess, what we, what will we get more information about that? And I would really hope that we do. Um, but of course, there's always the possibility that it will not be Sibel Spicer and we might never actually know the full details. What do you both think? Who, What was Sibel Spicer's involvement in playing the Red Wedding? I think it's important to avoid presentism with something like this. Like when Rob takes the crag, it's actually not clear that he's going to lose the war at that point. It's looking much more likely that the Starks are going to end up in a, in a solid position vis-a-vis the Lannisters. It's only after the Blackwater that it looks like the Lannisters are going to win. And that's also the only point at which it makes any sense for Sibel to be able to contact Tywin. Although, as you say, he'd, she'd still have to get around the, the Northmen being in charge of her castle. I can see the Northmen being lax. Maybe they're focused on Rob and maybe she's able to get a coded message out with her maester. I I think, you know, there is the stuff in her backstory with being related to Maggie, which suggests she might have some knowledge of love potions or the like. People have theorized about this, that maybe she she pushed Rob and Jane together. And I, I could see her wanting to please Rob Stark or to have some way of ensuring Rob was not going to do anything bad to her family. I could see maybe she pushed Jane into bed with Rob, hoping just that Rob would be into her and would keep the Westerlings alive on that basis. I definitely think the marriage came as a total shock to her. Hmm. I can't believe that was actually her plan. So maybe maybe we're looking at a couple different improvisations here. But I, I think what's I think at at the bare minimum, once the Battle of Blackwater was over, she decided that Rob's cause was probably doomed. And then I think at that point and, and no later, she got involved with, with messing with Rob and Jane. I'm more skeptical of it happening sooner, but I do think it's in the realm of possibility. What do you think, Sarah? I think, well, at first I was so intimidated by this question that I kind of treated it like Clebane Bowl and I was just going to tiptoe down the <laughs> stairs right past it and let you guys handle it, which you've done very well, by the way. So I don't think you, you need too much from me, but I will say that I think it's more tragic if... Rob just made a mistake, you know, an adolescent mm-hmm. or teenage mistake and and fell into bed with her through his grief um, about losing his other family members and that, you know, choices that that are just universal to the human experience would would lead to a big downfall, I think, is sort of more effective and more, you know, painful in that sense. Um, but that said, I do love a little, you know, Maggie the Frog uh, mm-hmm. prophecy kind of thing going on with love potions and stuff. So I could get behind either one. Although, you know, my first instinct was that this was just a mistake that Rob made and the consequences are so devastating that that just makes it doubly so. 
So thank you so much to Guilty Undertaker for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we must answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher-level patron over at patreon.com slash ASOIAF, where you can also get show notes, bonus episodes every month, merch, access to the Nauta Slack, weekly minisodes we do before each episode, and shout-outs at the start and end of every episode. Yes, indeed. And of course, our latest bonus episode is all about Ed Tully versus Rob Stark and who was wrong at the at the Fords, which Emmett and I debated on that topic. So if you have the chance and you are a patron, check those episodes out. And if you are not a patron, again, check those, out, check those episodes out as well at patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOF and consider becoming a Patreon or patron today. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Sansa Stark, she had seen the Tyrells enter King's Landing, attended an innocent dinner with Elena and Marjorie Tyrell, and heard wonderful news. She was going to get out of King's Landing and marry Willis Tyrell. Let's continue the good times in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Sansa 2. A new gown, she said, as wary as she was astonished. More lovely than you've ever worn, my lady, the old woman promised. She measured Sansa's hips with the length of a knotted string. All silk and mirish lace with silver with satin linings. You'll be very beautiful. The queen herself has commanded it. Well, I think 2015 version of me is shrieking in horror at the start of this chapter. 2021 version of me, much more mature, elderly, smart, strong, is saying, hmm, how interesting. It's a Sansa chapter and we're going to have fun with it. Sansa Stark asks which queen commanded her to wear the dress. And Sansa's told that it's Cersei. Wait, Cersei said that? Oh, yeah, the woman says. Sansa needs to dress like a real woman now. Sansa gets her arms measured, thinking that she did need a new dress given how much she'd grown and how she'd burned most of her wardrobe when she burned her bed and when she had her first period. Your bosom will be as lovely as the queen's, the old woman said as she looped her string around Sansa's chest. You should not hide it so. The comment, the comment made Sansa blush. Yet the last time she'd gone riding, she could not lace her jerkin all the way up to the top, and the stable boy gaped at her as she as he helped her mount. Sometimes she caught grown men looking at her chest as well, and some of her tunics were so tight she could scarce breathe in them. Sansa asks the color of the dress, and the woman says, um, yeah, it'll be awesome. Yeah, the color is going to be awesome. She will take care of the colors. No need for further questions. And when is Sansa supposed to wear this dress? Why, um, way, way before Joffrey's wedding to Marjorie for, um, reasons reasons yes reasons are why you are going to need to be wearing this dress before joffrey's wedding sansa thanks the woman and cersei for the dress and the old woman leaves sansa remains suspicious though she thinks maybe this is marjorie's or olena's work marjorie had been really nice to her since the dinner bringing sansa into the fold of the ladies in the tyrell court lady leonette gave sansa harp lessons lady jenna was a gossip mary crane was a good storyteller and lady bulwer reminded sansa of Arya. and then there were the tyrell cousins Closest to Sansa's own age were the cousins, Eleanor, Alla, and Mega. Tyrells from junior branches of the house. Roses from lower on the bush, quipped Eleanor, who was witty and willowy. Mega was round and loud, Alla shy and pretty. But Eleanor ruled the three by right of womanhood. She was a maiden flower, whereas Mega and Alla were mere girls. The cousins took Sansa into their company as if they had known her all, her, all their lives. They spent long afternoons doing needlework and talking over lemon cakes and honeyed wine, played at tiles of an evening, sang together in the castle sept, and often one or two of them would be chosen to share Marjorie's bed, where they would whisper half the night away. Alla had a lovely voice, and when coaxed, would play the wood harp and sing songs of chivalry and lost loves. Mega couldn't sing, but she was mad to be kissed. She and Alla played a kissing game sometimes, she confessed, but it wasn't the same as kissing a man, much less a king. 
Sansa wondered what Maga would think about kissing the hound as she had. He'd come to her the night of the battle, stinking of wine and blood. He kissed me and threatened to kill me and made me sing him a song. Mega tells Sansa that Joffrey has beautiful lips, fucking worm lips, and how Sansa must have been so heartbroken when Joffrey broke up with her. Joffrey made me weep more often than you know, Sansa wanted to say. But Butterbumps was not on hand to drown out her voice, so she pressed her lips together and held her tongue. Eleanor was betrothed to Alan, a squire of Lord Ambrose, and she gushes that her favor made Alan brave in battle. He says he shouted her name for his battle cry. Isn't that ever so gallant? Someday I want some champion to wear my favor and kill a hundred men. Eleanor told her to hush, but looked pleased all the same. They are children, Sansa thought. They are silly little girls. Even Eleanor. They've never seen a battle. They've never seen a man die. They know nothing. Their dreams were full of songs and stories, the way hers had been before Joffrey cut her father's head off. Sansa pitied them. Sansa envied them. And I have to admit, those lines are pretty great. Moving on. The thing that keeps Sansa going is Marjorie, who takes her out to the city ramparts to see the remnants of the battle, and also to go hawking. Marjorie tells Sansa that Willis is a great birdsmith. I don't know if that's a word or not. He uses eagles, though. Marjorie then calls Sansa's sister, and Sansa's all like, I would love a sister like Marjorie. She had Arya, and Arya kind of sucked as a sister but how could she let marjorie her sister marry joffrey marjorie please sansa said you mustn't it was hard to get the words out you mustn't marry him he's not like he seems he's not he'll hurt you oh i shouldn't think so marjorie smiled confidently it's brave of you to warn me but you need not fear joff's spoiled in vain and i don't doubt that he's as cruel as you say but father forced him to name loris to his kingsguard before he would agree to the match I shall have the finest knights of the Seven Kingdoms protecting me night and day as Prince Aemon protected Nerys, so our little lion had best behave, hadn't he? Marjorie laughed and said, Come, sweet sister, let's race back to the river. It will drive our guards quite mad. And without waiting for an answer, she put her heels into her horse and flew. Sansa thinks that Marjorie is prey, but she has doubts that all would be well. She remembers the stories of how Aegon IV didn't hurt Queen Nerys because of Aemon the Dragon Knight, then again, Aegon the Fourth murdered another Kingsguard for sleeping with one of his mistresses. Also, he uh, killed the mistress too. Still, Sansa wonders about how Loras Tyrell will conduct himself. Sure, Joffrey might not be a total shit for a little while, but he will return to his old ways soon enough. And when he did, Sansa thinks and knows that there's going to be a new Kingslayer and the gutters will run red with Tyrell and Lannister blood. How is it that Marjorie and Mace didn't see this? Maybe... Sansa was being silly, she thinks to herself, which, no, you're being rather smart, Sansa. When Sansa told Sir Dantos that she was going to Highgarden to marry Willis Tyrell, she thought he would be relieved and pleased for her. Instead, he had grabbed her arm and said, you cannot, in a voice as thick with horror as with wine. I tell you, these Tyrells are only Lannisters but flowers, I beg of you. Forget this folly, give your Florian a kiss and promise you'll go out as we have planned. The, the night of Joffrey's wedding, that's not so long where the silver-haired net, as I told you, and afterward we may, we make our escape. He tried to plant a kiss on her cheek. Sansa tried to slip away from him as Dantas told her that the arrangements for her were safely all made. Sansa, though, doesn't need arrangements anymore. She's going with the Tyrells to Highgarden. They're going to keep her safe. But, but he doesn't know you, Dantas insisted, and he will not love you, Jonquil. Jonquil, open your sweet eyes. These Tyrells care nothing for you. It's your claim they mean to wed. My claim? Sansa was lost for once. Wailing, he told her. You are heir to Winterfell. Dantos grabbed her again, pleading that she must not do this thing, and Sansa wrenched free and left him swaying beneath the heart tree. She had not visited the godswood since. Though Sansa hadn't gone back to that godswood, she did keep thinking about Dantos' words about her claim. 
It didn't actually make a lot of sense to her at this moment. Rob Stark, her brother, was still alive, and he would be married and have children one day. Anyways, what would Willis or the Tyrells want with Winterfell? They had Highgarden. Sansa had been doing a lot of thinking about Willis these days, whispering his name, thinking she shouldn't care about his lame leg. She fantasizes about sitting together with puppies, listening to music, and floating down barges down the bander. If I give him sons, he may come to love me. Sansa would name them Eddard, and Brandon, and Rickon, and raise them all to be as valiant as her Sir Loras, and to hate Lannisters too. In Sansa's dreams, her children looked just like the brothers she had lost. Sometimes there was even a girl who looked like Arya. But Sansa keeps thinking about Loras instead of Willis, telling herself that, no, I shouldn't be doing this. It isn't right. But she couldn't. She could not be seen to be disappointed when she met Willis. And Willis may not be all that good looking. He might look like Mace after all, and he's fucking ugly. But that didn't matter. She had to be good to him. Unfortunately for Sansa, she still had dreams, or rather nightmares, of marrying Joffrey, who turned into ill and pain in her dreams. Sansa thinks, Sansa thinks that she didn't want Marjorie to suffer, but she had warned her, and Marjorie was keeping on, keeping on about the whole goddamn thing. Sansa figures that Marjorie will learn Joffrey's true nature soon, and she decides to light a candle to the mother to protect Marjorie, and a candle to the warrior to aid Loras too, if it came to that. She would wear her new gown for the ceremony at the Great Sept of Baylor. She decides the seamstress took her last, last measurement. That must be why Cersei is having one made for me, so I will not look shabby at the wedding. Sansa really ought to have had a different gown for the feast afterwards, but she supposed one of the old ones would do. She did not want to risk getting food or wine on the new one. I must take with me to Highgarden. She wanted to look beautiful for Willis Tyrell. Even if Dantos is right and it is Winterfell he wants and not me, he still may come to love me for myself. Sansa hugged herself tightly, wondering how long it would be before the gown was ready. She could scarcely wait to wear it. And that is the synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Sansa 2. Now... You might be wondering if you've ever followed me on social media at all, if I've changed my mind about this being the worst chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. And for that, dot, 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 well, you're going to have to wait because both Emmett and Sarah deserve the space to speak and I'm tired of talking first. So what did you both think about this chapter? Well, we're finally back with my favorite character arc in A Song of Ice and Fire, Jeff's arc in which he learns to love Sansa Stark. (laughs) (laughs) What a long, strange trip it's been. Seriously, though, I do get why this chapter throws some people off. On first read, it seems like nothing much happens. Sansa 2 could have been designed for a reread podcast like ours because it only fully takes shape once you come back to it. Knowing that Sansa gets married off to Tyrion against her will instead of Willis Tyrell lends a powerful dramatic irony to this chapter. On the surface, this may well be the happiest chapter in The Song of Ice and Fire, but a current of doom runs underneath. A sense of inevitability that George expresses through an innovative structure that jumps around in time. Sansa is still trapped. She just doesn't know it yet. What did you think of the chapter, Sarah? Well, you're so right that it's ideal as a reread, because I honestly thought the Tyrells were going to save Sansa the first (laughs) time around. I know, poor naive past me. I was a show watcher first. And the scene from Sansa's last chapter, of course, that you guys covered recently, also played out similarly in the show, in which Elena and Marjorie, and Butterbumps, of course, ask her for the truth about Joffrey. I was holding my breath when I first watched the episode and also when I read it, and so full of hope that they really would whisk her away. It was a huge relief to see her being honest for the first time about what she's endured at Joffrey's hands. And of course, it doesn't go that way. Her ordeals are actually just getting started, really. Um, The irony is that in a sick, sick way, both Sansa and Arya, both Stark sisters, got 
what they wanted, just in the most horrible version possible. Sansa is getting a wedding in King's Landing in front of the High Lords and Ladies, a beautiful dress, and Arya got her own sword and lessons and how to wield it. But if you follow either of those wishes to their worst conclusions, they've, they've both turned sour. Sander tells Sansa point blank that knights are for killing. And Arya learns that from experience. Instead of the excitement of learning in the company of safe and trusted adults, Arya is thrust into the world alone with no family and no pack and forced to put her lessons to use. She may have wanted to learn how to use a sword, but I don't think she wanted to have to mm. use it. Not this, not in this way, you know, not from these circumstances at this age. Now it's for survival. Now she doesn't have a choice in the matter. But each Stark sister's current plotline did actually start from a seed of their own wishes. And basically, that's kind of the worst type of nightmare is when you've inverted a dream like that. Mm. Because what is a nightmare if not the flip side of a dream? That's what makes it so painful. Taking something that you genuinely did want and then sort of twisting it. Arya's disillusionment is expressed externally. I don't remember exactly which chapter this is in, but I, I do distinctly remember when she comes across some kids her age playing at war with some toy soldiers. I think she breaks them. Hmm. She, I think she literally breaks the toy's leg and says, now it looks like a soldier. Hmm. But with Sansa, she sort of doesn't have the ability to express any of this stuff externally. It's all internal. And we get a good look at her thought processes here. She senses that things are not as they seem, but she only has herself to mull it over with. Yeah, and that's such a lonely feeling to have to just be alone with your thoughts despite being surrounded by people. And I think that is a fascinating dynamic for Sansa. And it's something that, you know, even as we get to the Winds of Winter and her Elaine sample chapter, it's something that she is still experiencing even as late as, again, the start of the Winds of Winter. But this chapter. So here we are. Another Sansa chapter. And the verdict is this chapter is good. Actually, I know. I know I'm as surprised as you all by my own admission. <laughs> Emmett, you are absolutely right, as you often are, except for about Edmure versus versus Rob, that this chapter works as <laughs> as a brilliant reread chapter. And Sarah, you're right that Sansa is getting prepped to receive what she wants in the worst possible way. To me, what makes this chapter a really good one on this reread is that Sansa realizes that something is amiss amidst all of the seemingly good times. More than that, Sansa demonstrates that despite the horrors that she's witnessed, her heart remains noble. She still cares about people and desperately wants to them to avoid experiencing the horrors that she's witnessed and experienced in King's Landing, which is just damn. This is a really good chapter, even if it kicks off with a dress, which is fine. It's fine. It's great. That's how it starts. A new gown, she said, as wary as she was astonished. So right from the start of the chapter, we're dealing with the possibility that nothing is as it appears. Sansa knows enough to be suspicious of such sudden generosity. As she said in her last chapter, life in Joffrey's court taught her not to trust. But she doesn't have enough information to put the puzzle pieces together, in large part because there are just so many pieces at play, and that sums up the entire chapter. Even finding out who sent the dress is complicated. When the seamstress says it was the queen, Sansa wonders if she means Marjorie. She was Renly's queen, after all. The Lannisters might consider him a traitor, but now Marjorie is marrying a new king. So maybe people have just started calling her a queen, like how some folks in the Riverlands are already calling Edmure a lord? Or maybe Olenna sent the dress. She's called the Queen of Thorns. But no, turns out it was Cersei, the queen regent. That little confusion is so revealing. 
The Tyrells and Lannisters are officially allies, about to be one great house, as everyone keeps saying. But in practice, eh, this western town often just isn't big enough for the two of them. How many queens can there really be? It's a zero-sum game of musical chairs. You win or you die. And the Tyrells and Lannisters are often working at cross-purposes behind the scenes. This is also revealing in terms of Sansa's arc. As the seamstress says, Sansa's becoming a woman, not a little girl anymore, and she should dress the part. Sansa has grown, both up, three inches in the past year, and out. Her breasts are now too big for her clothes, and men are starting to stare. With Catelyn so far away, Cersei has become Sansa's maternal figure. Albeit a, you know, manipulative and untrustworthy one. (laughs) Yes, Cersei is my favorite character, but this is the worst mentorship probably ever that I've witnessed. (laughs) I was always struck by the fact that one of the very first things Cersei does once they've left Winterfell is strip both Stark girls of their direwolves. Right away, they're exposed. They've lost that level of protection. They barely got to even enjoy having direwolves. It's still... It still makes me sad, but Cersei does have a lot to teach Sansa, and there do seem to be occasional glimmers of her wanting to impart real advice, or at least of letting things slip, becoming a bit too honest when she's drunk during the Battle of the Blackwater. But more often, Sansa uses Cersei's words and behavior as examples of what not to do. They do have actually a staggering amount of things in common in terms of their circumstances, Some of the parallels that immediately come to mind when I think of Cersei and Sansa are that they both arrived in King's Landing at age 11 or 12. They both are daughters of the Hand of the King. They were both kept in the Hand's Tower, awaiting betrothal or marriage, which of course have little glimmers of Rapunzel going (laughs) on. Both fell in love with the aesthetic and imagery of a prince, but not a real person who they didn't really get to know. Um, either until it was too late or, you know, Rhaegar died. Both were forced into miserable marriages that they did not choose. Cersei had to marry the man who killed her quote-unquote ideal betrothal of Rhaegar. And we find out later through her POV chapters and feasts that she never forgives him for it. Sansa had to marry the man who killed her dad. Or at the very least, as she'll eventually discover, she has to marry into the family of the people who killed her dad. And have kids with that person. Like, Hmm. that's the plan. And that's just, I mean, it's so beyond cruel. Sansa learns how to utilize soft power, much like the Tyrells. Whereas Cersei uses sexuality and seems to disdain soft power a lot of the time. But she was never really effectively taught how to use hard power, though she seems to believe that she knows. Although their circumstances are superficially quite similar, they couldn't be more different in the ways that they respond to those circumstances. Like Cersei, (laughs) she doesn't care if the world's unfair, just so long as it's unfair in her favor, just so long as the rules that keep other women down won't apply to her. Her attitude is, I survived it, so can you, rather than, maybe we can make this less horrifying. She's fine to keep the world the way it is, just with herself at the top of the hierarchy. Fuck them other women. Well, Sansa seems to desire a genuine sisterhood, as we see in this chapter. And I definitely want to give credit to Lo the Lynx and Rohan's essay on Cersei called A Most Uncommon Woman, which includes a great analysis of this aspect of Cersei's character and helped me understand and articulate this attitude that she has. Unlike Sansa, Cersei wants to dominate She dreamt she sat the Iron Throne high above them all. She wants to be feared and obeyed, existing on a separate higher level, not forced to mingle with the unwashed. Sansa thinks, if I'm ever queen, I'll make them love me. 
Sansa seems to want to participate, walk among the people, possibly make life better for them. The difference is that one of them had Catelyn Stark for a mother and Ned for a father. Cersei, on the other hand, had no mother, and what are the worst possible dads? If not for a fucky from the gods, that unfair twist of fate, in her view, she could have easily been born a man. She grew up intimately aware of what that life might have been like, because she has an actual twin whom she views as the male version of her. So with that contrast, it's, I think, particularly difficult for her to accept the fact that she had to grow up as a woman. I think that's a really great way of laying it out, that that Cersei-Sansa dynamic is obviously really important for both those characters because you can see the impact it has on Sansa and Cersei is still thinking kind of vengefully about Sansa long after she leaves the city. And while Cersei doesn't directly appear in this chapter, she haunts it. Sansa thinks about her entry into womanhood, setting her wardrobe on fire while trying to hide the evidence of her first period. It was Cersei who confronted her afterwards, and now Cersei is replacing all the clothes she burned up. The seamstress compares Sansa's growing bosom to Cersei's, and indeed, Cersei remembers the men starting to stare, really just like Sansa does. Men had been looking at her that way since her breasts began to bud. Because I was so beautiful, they said. But Jaime was beautiful as well, and they never looked at him that way. As you were saying, Sarah, Cersei's resentment of how she was treated does not lead her to empathize with other women. Quite the opposite. She knows the gilded cage of noble femininity so well that she's able to lock Sansa inside it. I was forced into this? Why shouldn't you be? What are you, special? What are you, better than me? No one's better than me. I'm Tywin Lannister's daughter. On reread, the red flags stand out in this scene. Like the seamstress not telling Sansa what colors the dress is going to be, insisting it has to be ready before the king's wedding. You can feel the irony dripping off the page when Sansa and the seamstress agree that Cersei is just so generous. (laughs) They both know better. Cersei said that love is a sweet poison, and this gown from her is a poisoned gift. It's also interesting to consider that um, this chapter would occur several months, likely before the start of the year 300 AC, when uh, when Marjorie and Joffrey are supposed to wed. So it's interesting that she's being married so well, she may be married. She's being measured so far in advance of that chapter, which is a clear sign that something is quite amiss here. And I think one aspect of it that kind of sticks out to me is that the opening of this chapter. It continues that theme in Sansa's story of how chivalry and femininity are being weaponized against Sansa. And here, the seamstress plays the role of the kind of kindly peasant woman to the highborn who is kind to Sansa because kindness is great and awesome, isn't it? Unfortunately, this seamstress in this medieval world is an employee of Cersei's and she has learned the best way to stay alive is to lie on her employer's behalf. Cersei, as we all know, has no qualms about killing small folk or selling them off to slavers. So completely understandable why this woman is lying to Sansa. And at the same time, it's another sad note that the nobility continued to make the peasantry complicit in their misdeeds. In kind of a weird way, this seamstress reminds me of characters like Steelshank Waltons who are just normal run-of-the-mill people who do who do shitty things when the lord orders them to do so this woman kind of is doing a shitty thing because cersei's ordered her to do so but probably isn't a terrible horrible person on the outside but here on the inside she is lying to sansa she just wants to keep her tongue i mean I, you know i understand i, can't blame I mean her. <laughs> feast for crows i mean cersei's sending people down to uh all, all those the puppeteers down to um to, to kyburn and so yeah obviously for, for daring to speak out against uh, her in that in that puppet show in, in, in king's landing so again, it's completely understandable why the seamstress is lying by omission to Sansa. Still, there's a moment in the chapter where you can sense that this woman kind of wants to tell Sansa the truth. 
You should have small clothes and hose as well, kirtles and mantles and cloaks and all else befitting a, a lovely noble young lady of noble birth. What I think this woman might have been trying to say is, you know, befitting a bride to be or some such. But she's been told by Cersei to hide why she was measuring Sansa for her wedding gown as Sansa is about to be married off to Tyrion. It's deception all the way down. Yet even as Cersei Lannister plays at deception for rather nefarious reasons, the Tyrells are not innocent of deception. They are quite up to their neck in their own game of deception against against Cersei and also in this chapter against Sansa. Yes, they are. And Sansa assumes the dress must have something to do with the Tyrells, because she is all about the Tyrells right now. And this thought triggers the first of several nested flashbacks. Sansa, too, has a sophisticated analeptic structure, in which George starts with Sansa and the dress, tunnels back in time to fill in the context, and then returns to the present moment, which has now been reshaped by that context. Unlike Cersei, the Tyrells have been, quote, unfailing in their kindness to Sansa. This is exactly what she's been missing, the company of other women. In isolation, it can be easy to forget how good companionship feels. It's like Sansa's hanging out with people for the first time in the pandemic. The older women in the Tyrell court teach her lessons and share the gossip, but Sansa spends most of her time with Marjorie's cousins, Mega, Alla, and Eleanor, closest to her own age. If Cersei shows Sansa the cynical, destructive person she could become in response to disillusionment, the Tyrell cousins show her the opposite, what those youthful illusions look like from the outside. On one hand, they're so casually generous with their friendship and the way that young people can be, not wanting anything out of Sansa except to spend time with her. They sing, they do needlework, they eat lemon cakes, it's all of her favorite things. On the other hand, the Tyrell cousins show Sansa what she looked like before the fall before her handsome prince had her father beheaded in front of her. It's the gender flip side of what Jamie thinks about another Tyrell, Loras, later in the book. He's me. I'm speaking to myself, as I was. All cocksure, arrogance, and empty chivalry. This is what it does to you, to be too good, too young. This self-recognition is a painful process. You can't recognize your delusions until you shed them. And there's always someone coming up behind you, ready to inherit that gauzy songs and stories filter on the world. Just as John is starting to learn that old Nan's stories of life beyond the wall were full of exaggerations and omissions, Sansa has enough distance from her previous worldview to recognize how much it was hiding from her. What do we hide from kids? Sex and death, the most powerful forces in existence, opposites that always feed off each other like ice and fire. That doesn't stop the Tyrell cousins from thinking about them, though. Kids often obsess over sex and death precisely because they're so taboo. You're not supposed to be talking about it. You're not supposed to be thinking about it. That makes it enticing and makes it mysterious. (laughs) Mega is, quote, mad to be kissed and has been practicing with Ala. These childhood social circles are where they rehearse for adulthood. It's all play. It's make-believe, as Sansa only realizes now. She experienced the real thing with Sandor. Or wait, did she? (laughs) Sansa thinks to herself that Sandor kissed her during the Blackwater, but that's not true. And George has said this is important. He said in response to reader questions about this, that will eventually mean something. Just now it's a subtle touch, something most of the readers may not even pick up on. File this one under unreliable narrator and feel free to ponder its meaning. Despite how violent Sandor was, Sansa has romantically imprinted on that moment. She's got one foot in the songs and one foot out of them. Part of her is able to see through the naive beliefs of the Tyrell cousins. When Mega starts rhapsodizing about Joffrey's lips and saying that, oh, Sansa, you must have wept to miss out on smooching them, all Sansa can think is that Joffrey did make her weep, 
because his beauty is only skin deep. Eleanor, the oldest of the three cousins, is engaged to Alan, a squire who wore her favor in the Battle of Blackwater. He killed two men out there. Mega thinks it was ever so gallant and can't wait until she has a dashing young man to kill a hundred men for her. Mega's not bloodthirsty, necessarily. She just doesn't have the experience to understand the implications of what she's saying. She's not thinking of those hundred men as individuals like her, who will suffer and then be gone forever, losing out on the life they could have lived. She's thinking of romance as a game that you win. The more men die for you, the more your boyfriend loves you. It's just simple math. <laughs> it's all bred by the stories, which are so powerful for kids, in part because they lack any reference point in their own lives to compare it to. This, Sansa thinks, is the way she used to be. Innocent and ignorant, the two constantly reinforcing each other. The Tyrell cousins are still in Plato's cave. They're still plugged into the Matrix. And even though Sansa knows it's fake, part of her wants to join them, which is why she invents what fans call the unkiss, this kiss with Sandor that didn't actually occur. After all, Sansa isn't any more free or more happy because she's more enlightened than they are. All she got out of it was the ability to see the cage. That's what Sandor kept telling her, right? This is all for show. Yet she disarmed him with her song, made him cry. Her imagination takes that a step further, turning the scene into the romance he claimed was impossible. Is it really that different from Eleanor's betrothed declaring he was braver with her favor around his arm? This is the great contradiction. Artifice can be used to cover up atrocities. But artifice is also how we survive atrocities. We need to tell ourselves stories or we're just going to be left with the abyss. So naturally, Sansa feels both ways about the Tyrell cousins. George feels both ways about them, too, and I think we're supposed to as well. Yeah, that's really brilliant, Emmett. Marjorie's cousins are not characters I've given a ton of thought to, but I always appreciate how you and Jeff take the time to dig into what the minor characters bring to the texture and themes of the books. It adds so much to my enjoyment and appreciation of the work. They serve as effective contrasts to Sansa and bring about revelations she might not otherwise have had. The line from this chapter that stands out the most for me, and I'm sure for others as well, is Sansa pitied them. Sansa envied them. It gutted me the first time I read and each time since. It doesn't work if it's in the opposite order. It's more poignant this way. It's more bittersweet. It starts out a little bit condescending, <laughs> and then it pivots to completely heartbreaking. She wants what they have that she can never get back. And she knows she can never get it back, which is why she envies them. My niece is 11, actually, and it's very disturbing to think of how young a kid that age really is. Of Willis, Sansa thinks, he may still come to love me for myself. She still thinks there's a hope, but the hope is fainter now than it was when she was younger, and it's tempered with a keener sense of reality. Now she's preparing for different contingencies, thinking ahead and brainstorming the methods, the acting, really, preparing for a role she'll need to play to increase her chances of the best possible outcome should she actually make it to Highgarden. She has to calculate ahead of time about how to behave. And this is a striking contrast to her original arrival in King's Landing when she had her family's protection and could be swept away with the pomp and spectacle. She's grown up so much since then, well, she's been forced to grow up. Among her calculations, when she thinks of the future, she specifically tells herself she can't allow Willis to glimpse any disappointment in her eyes. And maybe if she gives Willis sons, as though that's something that she could even control, that she could turn things around. Despite being a hostage of the Lannisters and seeing horror up close, 
she hasn't fully abandoned the idea that she might yet be in a romance. Now, romance, of course, as a contemporary genre, has very specific parameters, the most important of which is the requirement of an HEA. Uh, that's what we call it in publishing. It's happily ever after, of course. It's a contract with the audience. They know if they pick up the genre of romance, they are guaranteed a specific ending, that all the suffering will have had a purpose that will lead to reconciliation. The characters will become whole. They will figure out what they've been doing wrong and all will be made right. Unfortunately for Sansa, that is not the type of story that she's in. She's in a story that contains romanticism in the 19th century poetic sense. And we know that George has referred to himself as a romantic. But that's very different from writing a romance. A Song of Ice and Fire contains the sort of melancholy Wordsworth, Lord Byron, Bronte sisters type of romance. And uh, J.B. and Cersei are definitely the illusion of Heathcliff and Cathy from Wuthering Heights, which is partly why they fascinate me so much. Oh, also, <laughs> this is a tangent really quick, but I think Sweet Robin is definitely a stand-in for that sickly, whiny little Linton. <laughs> but uh, that's a different topic. Um, the type of romance, to bring it back, the type of romance we see here can be bittersweet, beautiful and tragic, as with Egret and John, a sunset versus a sunrise. But... The readers at this point, hopefully, are not under any illusion of a happily ever after. There are not going to be any HEAs here. Even though the chapter is fairly short, I think it shows the beginnings of Sansa realizing that whatever happiness she can possibly grab for herself will have to be based on her making the best of her circumstances and being proactive and careful about how she behaves, rather than hoping the world and the other people in it will provide for her, whether it's her happiness or her safety. It's up to her now. Yeah. And I think that sense of, of, of that dynamic of Sansa having agency right now or aspiring to that in, in High Garden is something that kind of keeps her her hopes afloat and to have that HEA, as you were saying so well. And then having that dynamic is something that inspires her right now. And it's all going to be bitterly brought down in the next Sansa chapter, because even while we see how real people work here, we should be aware that these girls that Sansa is encountering, they're not actually her real friends when we get to the next Sansa chapter which is of course the one where she is married to Tyrion Lannister we do meet these these girls again at her wedding feast and what do we find from that chapter Eleanor Alla and Mega seem determined not to know her my friends Sansa thought bitterly these girls are playing at being Sansa's friends because they've been told by their noble superiors that they need to be friendly to Sansa they are playing their part in the Tyrell Game of Thrones of using soft power to win Sansa over ideologically to their cause. But when Sansa is no longer of any use to them and is of no value, as she's being married off to Tyrion instead of Willis, they ghost her. Again, similar to the seamstress, I understand why they act the way they do because they're mere cogs in the machine of Tyrell politics and are simply following orders. Or maybe it's not so top-down driven as I'm making it out to be. Maybe these girls were playing as friends to Sansa because she was connected to the cool girl in school, Marjorie Terrell. <laughs> and really, the only one, and, and this might be controversial, but the only one who seemed to be truly Sansa's friend in all of this nonsense is Marjorie, who at least has the decency to give Sansa a sad look at her wedding feast. And maybe it's, again, my perception, but judging from this chapter, Marjorie may have been bought into having Sansa as a sister for a short period of time anyways. 
Because we don't have Marjorie as a POV, we don't have any POV among the Tyrells, it's, it can be very difficult to tell which of her emotions are genuine and which are faked. Maybe she doesn't even really know anymore, and Santa's in that position as well. Her thoughts then move to Marjorie in this chapter as George shifts from one flashback to another. This one more recent. Sansa says this happened the day before last. Marjorie is different from her cousins. Older and wiser. Still kind, but as Sansa thinks, she's got a hint of Olena's steel in her as well. So if the cousins show Sansa who she was, Marjorie shows her who she could have been if she'd been raised to play the game. Marjorie isn't lost in the image. Instead, she's been trained by her grandmother to wield that image to consolidate political power. Just look at the purple wedding, how Olena and Marjorie never break character as they usher Joffrey into his grave. Even as he's behaving in all the ways that's getting him killed, they always smile, they always say the right things. George reflects this duality in the imagery here in this chapter. Marjorie takes Sansa hawking, telling her how good it'll be when Sansa marries Willis and they can be sisters, like you were saying, Jeff. But they're surrounded by the charred remains of the battle. They're surrounded by, like, all these these broken ships and just, like, horrible grim sights. <laughs> Those are the thorns lurking beneath the beautiful flowers of Highgarden. Soft power and hard power working hand in hand. Sansa was never taught how to compartmentalize like that. She was thrust, without warning, into a world with no protection from sudden violence. So the threat of violence spoils her good time. If she has really found a new pack, if Marjorie is her sister now, how can Sansa let her marry Joffrey? He's not like he seems, Sansa says, which sums up this chapter as a whole. Nothing and no one are as they seem. Not Marjorie, not Dantos, not even the dress. The irony is that Marjorie is performing every bit as much as Joffrey. It's a fine line she has to walk here, reassuring Sansa without giving away the game. The reality is that Marjorie has nothing to fear, because the Tyrells are planning on killing Joffrey, in part because of Sansa's <laughs> testimony about him. But since Marjorie can't say that, she has to act more naive than she really is. Just as Sansa kept quiet about Joffrey around the cousins, because Butterbumps wasn't around to cover up reality with fiction. Absolutely right. And I think this is this chapter is the strongest evidence that Marjorie knew about the plot knew about the plot to kill Joffrey from the get go. Now, the throne show had Olena keeping Marjorie completely in the dark about what was going to happen at her wedding. But I think book Marjorie is quite aware of what's about to happen. Now, a lot of noise has been made about how the age of Marjorie from the show is much more mature and savvy than Marjorie from the books. I mean, even George R. R. Martin said as much from an interview from 2013. My Marjorie is younger than Loras, not older than Loras, so she's really just like a 16-year-old kid. And Natalie is brilliant, Natalie Dormer, of course, is brilliant, but she's clearly not a 16-year-old kid. She's very smart. She's almost what my Marjorie will become in 10 years. So I, I, I understand where George is coming from here, especially as Natalie Dormer, peace be upon her, comes off as a much more dialed-in player in Terrell politics. But scenes like this one from A Storm of Swords, Sansa 2, show a competent and savvy Marjorie who knows that she's not in any real danger? Show Marjorie seems to believe that her own ability to sexually manipulate Joffrey was enough to stay his brutal nature, which of course was well displayed in the show by the crossbow scene from season three, episode two, which is of course the excellent example of this. Book Marjorie, though, is only 15 years old, but she still has this blasé attitude about the danger that Joffrey poses. And I think that blasé attitude is sourced to her knowing that Joffrey is not going to be much long for the world. But Marjorie can't tell Sansa that. She has to frame her attitude to Sansa in a plausible and, well, manipulative kind of way. Just like when Butterbumps was singing to cover up their conversation about Joffrey, Marjorie uses familiar images from the songs to get around the inconvenient truth. 
She acknowledges that Joffrey is cruel, but says that Loras will protect her. Doesn't he look the part of a perfect Kingsguard knight, just like Aemon the Dragon Knight when he was protecting Queen Neris? I love that Sansa, as with the dress, is smart enough to realize this doesn't make sense, though she doesn't have the information to put it all together. Unlike the Tyrell cousins, she no longer thinks of violence purely as something an individual does to reflect their passions. She's beginning to understand Varys's riddle about where power resides. Joffrey doesn't have to, like, defeat Loras in knightly single combat to hurt Marjorie. He has other knights at his command. Someday he'll have armies of his own, ones that will follow his lead rather than his parents, or his uncle Tyrion, or his grandfather Tywin. Sansa also understands that the Tyrells have power, beyond Loras's sword arm, so this seems like a recipe for disaster, in which individual acts of passionate violence, Joffrey hurting Marjorie, and then Loras kingslaying Joffrey, escalate into all-out war between sides with different interests. The irony keeps growing as Sansa wonders how the Tyrells don't see this train wreck coming. She can only conclude that she's being silly. On reread, we know that Sansa is on the right track, because the way Littlefinger describes Olena's calculus is like identical to how Sansa thinks about it. He says, Lady Olena was not about to let Joff harm her precious darling granddaughter, but unlike her son, she also realized that under all his flowers and finery, Sir Loras is as hot-tempered as Jaime Lannister. Toss Joffrey, Marjorie, and Loras in a pot and you've got the makings for Kingslayer Stew. The difference is that Sansa doesn't understand, yet, how ruthless the Tyrells can be, how far they will go to secure victory in the Game of Thrones. Dude, I mean, you're so right. I mean, like, something that this is this reread has completely solidified for me is how ruthless, as you say, the Tyrells truly are. If we take Sansa 1 from A Storm of Swords as our touchpoint, that seemed to be the spot where the Tyrell women were verifying the information they received about Joffrey from Littlefinger and the singers that he implanted into their retinue back at Bitterbridge. Between Sansa 1 and Sansa 2, Olena, Marjorie, and probably Garland Tyrell 2 finally agreed upon the murder plot. So that's why Marjorie, as I was saying before, is so blasé about the dangers that Joffrey poses. But she can't just out and out tell Sansa this. So she camouflages her blasé attitude with chivalric romance, hoping to bamboozle Sansa with songs and stories. And the songs and stories that are being utilized here are interesting because I think George really starts to flesh out the backstory of A Song of Ice and Fire, particularly the history in this book. And a lot of it comes out in Sansa and Tyrion chapters. That there's a, There are mentions here of Aegon IV, Queen Aerys, and Aemon the Dragon Knight. And of course, they were referenced earlier in the books. But here in Storm, they become a bit more fleshed out. The reason being, of course, that George R. Martin developed detailed backstories of the Targaryens and lineages between a Clash of Kings and a Storm of Swords, specifically about the history of the sword Blackfire and, a and all of Aegon IV's mistresses and the bastards that came from those liaisons. This is something I really actually love about A Storm of Swords, how George developed the backstory in correlation with the present story he was writing. It makes the history kind of come alive because readers connected to the present story. So the story of Aemon the Dragon Knight defending Queen Daenerys resonates because we readers can connect it to Sir Loras defending Queen Marjorie. Of course, the other interesting angle tossed in is that Marjorie is using the songs and stories to manipulate Sansa. The real stories of the abuse that Nerys suffered under Aegon IV and how Aemon defended Nerys from Aegon's secret accusations of adultery at Swordpoint by killing Sir Morgul Haystack are the stuff of songs, but a dude died, bro, and Aegon IV was able to get away with secretly slandering his wife scot-free. Beyond that, Aemon the Dragonite ended up dying for Aegon IV and Nerys died in childbirth a year later. And Aegon IV, the brother and husband, barely acknowledged their lives and deaths, so their stories happened to live out in song. 
Speaking of some of those historical or rather mythical type of stories who lived in their best lives and songs, our Florian the Fool arrives in the final flashback of this chapter. Yes, so then George jumps back in time to one more flashback, and this turns out to be the most important one of them all. In all the excitement of meeting the Tyrells, it's easy to forget about Dantos the Drunk. Sansa's only not a knight now that Sandor has skipped town. Back in Clash, Dantos seemed like Sansa's only friend in the world. He offered her escape, which meant that she had to put up with his shady, creepy attitude. He promised to get her out on the night of Joffrey's wedding to Marjorie, but it's all been in service of a benefactor he refuses to name. Now it seems like Sansa has an escape route that's more certain and more rewarding, a wedding to Willis at Highgarden. Dantos naturally objects to this, and this is a really complicated scene on reread as you have to tease out the semi-truth of what Dantos is saying and then compare it to what he really knows and what he does next. Dantos says that the Tyrells are just Lannisters with flowers, that Willis doesn't know nor love Sansa, and that the Tyrells, at the end of the day, want only her claim. He is exaggerating for effect, just like with his endless comparisons of the two of them to Florian and Jonquil. As a unit, the Tyrells are not as bad as the Lannisters, and from what we know of Willis, he seems like the best of the bunch. But his core point is correct. Sansa is not one of them, no matter how they pretend otherwise. The Tyrells have seized upon her for advantage, and as we'll see in her next chapter, they drop her just as quickly when she's no longer of use. For the first time, reader, it seems like Sansa's dilemma is how to integrate herself into House Tyrell. That's what she's thinking about. Her mission is to get Willis to love her, which she thinks means letting go of Loras. And this is part of Sansa's growth into maturity, recognizing that the person matters more than the image, and that her individual relationships with those people do take place in a political context. Maybe they do want me for my claim, but maybe I can get Willis to love me anyway. We'll name our children for our dead and raise them to hate Lannisters. Yeah, obviously this is, you know, it's kind of... Uh, it's it's a kind of intense uh, teenage emotion. There's 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 spite and and revenge and fierce joy in it. It's not explicitly political, but on reread it feels like Sansa's kind of long term planning to split the coalition from within. Like I'm going to raise Tyrell children to hate Lannisters. <laughs> on reread though, all that fledgling hope withers as the dramatic irony hits home in full. Dantos's secret friend is Littlefinger who made the deal with the Tyrells and nudged them into killing Joffrey in the first place. Their interests overlap, but only so far, just as the Tyrells and Lannisters are only friends on the surface. Littlefinger doesn't want Sansa to marry Willis, he wants Sansa all to himself, and Dantos knows that. So when Sansa told him about her little marriage pact, Dantos immediately told Littlefinger. This really brings up, this brings up an interesting timeline note about this chapter, and I'm indebted to the Davos Fingers podcast, our, our great forefathers, for saying this a few years ago when they covered this chapter. Because chronologically, A Storm of Swords Sansa 2 occurs after A Storm of Swords Tyrion 3, our next Tyrion chapter, where Tywin reveals, or rather, where Kevin reveals that Littlefinger told Tywin of the Tyrell plot. Later in the chapter, we learn that two days prior to the start of this chapter, Sansa rode out with Marjorie again, the start of this chapter being A Storm of Swords Sansa 2. Later, she meets up with Dantos Haller, and I believe that probably occurred that night. And then Kevin Lannister tells Tywin, Cersei, and Tyrion this at the small-er council session towards the end of A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 3. Lord Peter continues to demonstrate his loyalty. Only yesterday he brought us word of a Tyrell plot to spirit Sansa Stark off to Highgarden for a visit and there bury her to Lord Mace's eldest son, Willis. The implication being that Littlefinger told Tywin and Kevin about the Tyrell marriage plot the day after his nighttime meetup with Sansa in the Godswood 
meeting the day before the present chronology of A Storm of Swords, Sansa 2. Cersei then immediately sprang into action, sending in her seamstress to measure Sansa the day after receiving the information. Wild. I know, all of these chronological notes are super fucking nerd shit. But what I'm trying to get at is how smart of writing this is on George's part. Because it keeps the mystery of why Sansa is getting fitted for a beautiful dress alive while the conspiracy develops in the background. So it's good that this this chapter kind of occurs anachronistically to the rest of the Astorma Swords timeline. It preserves the impact of the reveal as well as makes it for a much more engaging, better story, especially upon reread. It's remarkable storytelling when you step back and look at it. The chapter starts and ends in the present moment as Sansa is measured for the dress. In between, the flash the flashbacks inform us what has happened, showing us how the dress came to be and what the real meaning of it is. It's similar to the analeptic style George uses in Sam's first chapter. And that's a more iconic example because of the literally apocalyptic stakes, like Sam is flashing back to a zombie attack. In this case, the stakes are more personal. Sansa is going to love her dress in the moment, but now we know that it's a straitjacket. It's a noose around her neck. And that, I think, is going to take us into foreshadowing and groundwork for this episode. The younger Tyrell cousins don't really come up much later in Storm of Swords. They mostly seem like they're just here to kind of bounce off Sansa, force her to think about herself. But they are going to return to prominence as part of the Marjorie Moon Tea subplot in A Feast for Crows. So George, George does make good use of them. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about it when you were talking about how these girls are really innocent and naive. And because they haven't experienced the real world the same way that Sansa has. But come a Feast for Crows, they kind of get the Sansa treatment in that they are all arrested by the Faith of the Seven for the crimes of of, of the Moon Tea and all the terrible things that, that Cersei accuses them falsely of, of doing with, with Marjorie. So I think like they do end up getting losing their, their innocence and naivety. But it's it occurs in a way that's even more horrifying especially given the fact that their fates are left unresolved even by the end of a dance with dragons also in this chapter sansa dreams that she might have to marry Illyn Payne. instead that's something she's worried about and when we get to her uh, marriage to Tyrion, joffrey threatens her with that exact scenario i might marry you to my headsman instead just just to show you that joffrey is literally something out of sansa's nightmares <laughs> yes <laughs> i don't know if this will happen in any form in the books but I keep thinking of Littlefinger's deranged quote from the Thrones show of fight every battle everywhere, always in your mind. And that was terrible. Sorry for that. Please. Uh, Sansa's not anywhere near that level of fighting every battle everywhere, always in her mind. But she's taking a first little baby step in that direction where she's learning to anticipate problems. Willis's disappointment if she doesn't behave properly and, and how she'll react if that does come to pass and under Littlefinger's tutelage uh, in the next two books that may be where she's where she's headed to just be operating on a different level of thinking ahead and what she'll do from every contingency and I think it's a great point because you know when we encounter Sansa in the Elaine chapter from the Winds of Winter she does meet uh, Harry the heir who ostensibly is outwardly a very handsome looking dude but inwardly is kind of a shit I mean like he is not a not a good dude uh, personality-wise, and Sansa is able to see through that. And I do wonder whether you know George often, as he said, will read the last couple Sansa chapters if he's writing a, a Winds of Winter Sansa chapter or a Tyrion past couple Tyrion chapters. I do wonder whether he read A Storm of Swords Sansa too, and did realize that Sansa had this whole thought about how Willis Tyrell might not be all that attractive, but he still has a good heart, as Olena talks about, and he might be the best of the Tyrells after all. And having a good heart is much more. Um, is better than, of course, having a, having a good appearance uh, when it comes to, to marriage, at least. 
And so finally, for foreshadowing groundwork, Kevin Lannister uses the same sort of language about the gutters running red with blood in the Dance with Dragons epilogue. And while the framing there is what will happen if they confront the sparrows, the chapter has this line. Lannister spearmen in crimson cloaks and lion-crested half-helms stood along the west wall of the throne room. Terrell guards in green cloaks faced them from the opposite wall. The chill in the throne room was palpable. And I think that signals that the gutters of King's Landing may still run red with Terrell and Lancer blood and Sparrow blood and Small Folk blood and Dornish blood. Like the entire freaking city is just going to be just painted red with blood, as Barrison Selmy would say in the throne show. Absolutely. I think this is one of those things where George was laying the seed for narrative developments without necessarily knowing it was going to go. I think you can see him, even as he's putting the Lannisters and Tyrells together as one big, perfect, happy family to rule Westeros. He's like, yeah, but it's going to come apart at some, it's going to come apart at some point. Whenever, (laughs) whenever I arrange things so that it's, it's ready to go, I think he was always ready, ready for the Lannisters and the Tyrells to fight. So I think that'll take us into a theory and discussion portion of the episode. And we, we mentioned what we we're going to talk about earlier. But uh, Sarah, I wanted to give you a chance to talk all about your book. It's so exciting. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's called Hollywood Ending. And it came out in paperback uh, two months ago, yeah, this September um, from Kensington Books. I co-wrote it with Sarvanez Tosh under the pen name Tosh Skilton. We just combined, we're sort of lazy. We combined our two last names because, you know, we like Fleetwood Mac and we thought <laughs> that'll pay homage to them or something. Um, the book basically came about because we missed the show and that feeling of Sunday night anticipation, it, you know, it felt like a little bit of an end of an era. And I know you guys have talked about this in the past where instead of streaming where you can binge them all at once and everyone's on a different timeline, this was sort of a collective viewing across the world, really. And I sort of miss theorizing with my husband and wondering if the finale marked the end of that sort of time period um, of that engagement with everybody at the same time. I remember when the Red Wedding happened, just seeing Twitter just like light up. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that was sort of a special feeling that everybody was watching the same thing at the same time. Um, So in this book, Hollywood Ending, back in college, uh, Nina and Sebastian, our two protagonists, were best friends and super fans who bonded over their shared love of our Thrones-esque TV show, which we were calling Castles of Rust and Bone. (laughs) They would host viewing parties in the dorm, cosplaying, stay up all night discussing the show. But then when the show's abruptly canceled, their friendship happens to fall apart around the same time. They graduate, start their adulting lives, and we cut to five years later where they're both living in L.A. and Castles of Rust and Bone is being rebooted. Nina turns out to be the social media coordinator for the streaming service that's now going to air the show. And uh, we had fun. We call that Watch Go Now Plus. (laughs) And uh, Sebastian is a production assistant for the production company that's putting on the reboot. I'll, uh, I'll read from the paperback blurb because... The marketing team does a better job than I could ever do. Uh, They list Hollywood Ending as a friends to lovers rom-com that explores the hilarious highs and lows of adulting Hollywood and what happens when BFFs are forced to take a hard second look at their favorite fandoms and at each other. Something to tie this in actually to Sansa too very well is that I got a good piece of writing advice uh, quite a while ago. This is my my seventh published novel, and I always think about this advice when I'm originally drafting or outlining my projects. And the advice was to ask yourself, what's the very worst thing that could happen to this specific character? And whatever that worst thing is, you have to do it. 
you have to figure out their specific nightmare and then subject them to it because anything less is not going to provoke their full potential to grow and to learn. And it won't be as satisfying for the reader because on some level they will sense that you held back. Um, if you really get to know the characters, you'll know what their hopes and dreams are. You'll know what their greatest fears are. And you have to use those or you're not really digging as deep as you need to for the fiction to be effective. Um, and as we all know, George never holds back. <laughs> and that's something I really admire and, and can learn from him about when I'm writing. Like we were talking about with the Stark sisters earlier, Arya and Sansa technically got what they wanted. But, you know, it's sort of like uh, the witch in the musical Into the Woods. They got their wish, but it's completely twisted around. You know, I, I kind of think of A Song of Ice and Fire as act two of Into the Woods, <laughs> because nobody really gets to enjoy any of the stuff that they that they wished for. It all goes bad right from the beginning. <laughs> and now we get the story from that point onward. Um, for Hollywood ending, I definitely took that advice to heart. So for Nina and Sebastian, their dream is to work at their favorite show. And their nightmare is when that dream comes true, because now you've learned too much. And they start to long for their days of ignorance and innocence again. So working on the reboot of the Thrones type show is the framework of the story. But we had a lot of fun coming up with the, you know, awful behind the scenes aspects. I have no truck with the actual thrones. I don't know what was going on behind <laughs> the scenes. So it's not attempts to figure that out. It's all definitely fictional, just sort of inspired by the show. But I have interned at a network TV show quite a few years ago when I was in college. <clears throat> so there might have been a little inspiration there. I never signed an NDA, so I don't feel guilty. <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll never I'll never reveal the, the name of the show. It was uh, quite an experience that stayed with me all these years. And um, within the the love story, the secondary fear after getting to work on your, your dream job, the secondary fear is, well, if I act on my romantic feelings for this other person, will that destroy the friendship? And having lost each other once before, Nina and Sebastian are more scared this time around to take that risk and lose out on their second chance to be friends. But on the other hand, what do they lose by not acting? So we definitely wanted to make the story as much calm as Rom. So uh, for the people like Brand who think, ah, it's a kissing story, it's also a lot more than that. It's got a lot of comedy. It's a love letter as much to the characters as it is to L.A., where I've lived uh, for the last like 25 years. It's also a love letter to fandom, which is why I thought maybe, you know, some of your, your listeners might be interested in it. It's very tongue in cheek, but... It's also sincere at the agony and ecstasy of what it means to be a fan when you don't really have control over the object of your affection. You know, you can analyze it and you can appreciate it and you can enjoy it, but you're always going to be an observer. And there's something sort of bittersweet about that, which I wanted to include in the in the book. And of course, you know, I know you guys know this more than a lot of people. The connections that fans make with each other through their shared interests is definitely an interest and a love of mine. And I hope that sort of shines through with the book. I know that certain Not A Cast co-hosts prefer audiobooks, so I want to assure you that it is also available that way. Um, it's a paperback, audiobook, and ebook, and and don't worry for the audiobook, it's not me. It's not me telling the story and doing like bad little finger voices or anything like that. 
<laughs> but that's kind of the gist of the story. And, uh, you know, it's a it's a very light read, but we had a lot of fun. And we think that people who like A Song of Ice and Fire and, and people who liked the show uh, might enjoy it. There's, there's that bittersweet quality towards looking back on Game of Thrones as the thing everyone was watching. Hmm. And I don't know if you felt this while you were writing or if you feel it now, but do you think that's kind of just the end? Do you think that was like the last stand of that kind of collective media experience do you think we have anything mirroring that coming down the pike or or around right now i think you could argue that the replacement shows on sunday nights like succession Mm -hmm. on hbo have taken up that mantle but to only a fraction of the degree i feel like this was a once in a generation like global pop culture moment um and so i think in that respect we may not see its like for a while. Um, But I think that it did prove that people don't necessarily want every television series to be available in in one quick dump. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like you could have the 10 episodes, you could watch them all on one day, like Stranger Things or something. But then you kind of feel like it's over too quick. Uh, I I love the idea of giving it time to breathe each week and getting to reflect and maybe rewatch it and chat to people about your theories and wondering what's going to happen. You know, we kind of lose a little bit of that wondering when Netflix just fires up the next episode. If you're not quick enough to turn it off, oh, well, it's starting. I guess I'll watch it, you know. And I think there is something a little bit bittersweet about not having that experience on that level to that degree anymore. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think, you know, I just remember when when Game of Thrones was on, you know, Sundays was just a, a magical day of just waiting in anticipation for that episode to air. And then when the episode aired and I would sign off of social media and just try it because if someone would always be ahead by like five minutes and would be live, right. live tweeting with events that were happening. I'd be like, no, I'm not going to do that. But and, and so I'd watch the episode and then hop on social media afterwards and talk about things and be excited about stuff. And then like throughout the week. People would come up with the new theories about what's going to happen in the next episode, what are the greater themes and overall storytelling devices that were utilized by the show. And that experience, I think, is, is never going to happen again. I mean, I, I just finished personally uh, watching the, nef- the Netflix show Squid Game, and I watched it in nine episodes in, in one afternoon and evening because I was I have no life. And um, <laughs> I, I do think there's something missing from from that dynamic. And I, I do agree that it's, it's probably the the last show, at least for the time being, now maybe Wheel of Time or the Amazon Lord of the Rings show might be able to generate that type, that same sort of dynamic again, but I, I'm just not confident that's that's necessarily going to happen. I do think Succession is a potential successor <laughs> to Game of Thrones, and um, you know I would hope that shows like my favorite current show in, in syndication, Barry, would also be that way as well, but I'm just not confident that'll happen again. Uh, you know, Sarah, you had sent me your book uh, this this past summer, and I did get to read up through the the first chapter. And I have to say, I really enjoy the dynamic between Nina and Sebastian. I like the way that they interact is really um, lifelike. You know, some some people like do conversation and dialogue in kind of a stilted way. Um, what, for instance, myself. And, you know, it, it, it just shines the way that these two characters are interacting. And even though now I know kind of the outline of where their story is going to go, um, I'm still excited about tracing that dynamic because for me, it's not necessarily about the spoilage that happens for like whether the relationship, how the relationship is going to develop, but kind of the the necessary conversational character dynamics that are embedded there. And I think so far, at least in the first chapter, it's a it's an excellent dynamic, and I'm looking forward to reading more of it. 
Thank you very much. I mean, you know, it's a mutual admiration society. I read The Cautioner's Tale this <laughs> summer, and it really gutted me. It, it genuinely, uh, you know, my husband, I was a wreck. I was like, no, I just, I have to just... I need a moment, you know, especially at the ending. And uh, it was really nice to be able to sort of swap writing with you in that way. Yeah. And I will say that, you know, as far as Hollywood ending, there's there's a couple of different levels where the careful what you wish for sort of comes into play. And I remember reading a review of it on Goodreads, which is an evil website that no <laughs> author should actually go on. It's like the haunted house that authors dare each other to run across the porch. Like, OK, quick, check your reviews. OK, get out, get out. But uh Somebody said how they were surprised that the characters, this isn't really a spoiler, it's a rom-com, you know, surprised that the characters got together at a certain point in the book because they didn't know where it would go from there. And we were very interested in exploring the the difficulties of when you do actually get together with the person you've sort of been fantasizing about for years, because it's not going to go the way that you think it is. Hmm. And then sort of what do you do? How do you deal with that? Uh, and I know a lot of people, especially when we're in our 20s, as these characters are, you sort of lose friends to relationships where they just become all about that person mm -hmm. and they start to drop the friendships or the things that they used to have. And that can be a real problem. And so we wanted to explore a lot of those things while also making it just kind of like a fun romp in Hollywood and all that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you for saying that about the about the first chapter. I hope uh, I hope it continues to uh, feel that way for you. It will, I'm sure. I was going to briefly mention, I'll do this real quick because I know uh, we've been we've been chatting about Hollywood ending for a while, but I thought this might amuse some listeners who are familiar with some of the uh, books that inspired George, including The Dragonbone Chair. Um, when I was 10, I was a little bit precocious with the stuff I was reading. And one of the books I was reading was Tail Chaser's Song by Tad Williams, which is a fantasy novel about cats. And I wrote him a letter. This was back in like 1987. And he wrote back, I don't think he knew how old I was because he was telling me like he was pitching me like his next series, <laughs> which was the Dragon Bone Chair. And he said, you know, it's about people this time. And that's when I lost interest. I was like, eh, <laughs> it's a fantasy and it's not about cats. Pass. But um, I did recently learn that that it inspired A Song of Ice and Fire. And I'd love to revisit it. I read the first book in the trilogy and it was really good, but it was a little intense for me at the age that I was at the time. <laughs> so I think it's probably a good time for me to, to check it out while we're all waiting for wins. I could go. <laughs> Uh, check out uh, the Dragonbone Chair series, and who knows? Maybe it'll start uh, my brain churning with with new theories about what George will be up to. Yes, if I can see any similarities or any you know comparable moments or character work, it might be an interesting little uh, homework assignment for myself over break. As we all know, George R. R. Martin ripped it off. Of course, he <laughs> stole the entirety of *A Song of Ice and Fire* from Tad Williams. This is a verifiable internet facts. <laughs> and, and apparently there's a battle of ice on an ice lake in one of Tad Williams's dragon bone chair books. I, uh, oh. I, I, I know I, I have not read this, but uh, a friend of, of ours, uh, Michael, a.k.a. bookshelf stud had read, read the books and he said, oh, did you know this? And I said, no, thank you for sharing this like 10 years after you had read the books. And after 10 years after I, had written, <laughs> you know, the original battle of ice theories that I was working on when I was a, a younger person. But yeah. Some things, uh, some mm -hmm. books I definitely want to want to get to myself, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it's weird how those things come back. You know, I never would have thought uh, my parents had found this letter and, and dusted it off and, and given it back to me recently. And I just was thinking to myself, 
you know, you just never know where life's going to take you and the little intersections uh, between fandoms and things that as a 10 year old, you never would have thought. Here I am now talking about books that inspired a book that I'm obsessed with. And and yeah, it's it's just been so great chatting with you guys. I've been geeking out all week preparing for this. And I just I enjoy your podcast so much. It's been really, really cool to be a part of it for this episode. Thank you so much for saying that. It's, it's been a pleasure having you on for, for this episode. And uh, we'd love to have you back at some point down the road. But I do think that is going to wrap us up for this analysis of A Storm of Swords Sansa 2. As always, thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Sarah for joining us for this episode. If you have the chance, please rate review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at poor Quentin on Twitter. And Sarah, you want to tell people where they can find your work? Sure, I'm on the gram at Skiltongram, which I'm on a little bit more frequently than Twitter, but my Twitter handle is Sarah underscore Skilton. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way of Course, Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Hodinus, a prostitute, Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Narco Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, Septon Tebone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frost Fangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planeto Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga, and Warden of the Western Reserve, Lady Ken of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, and Sir Andrew of H-Town. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies for your support. Absolutely. Thank you folks so much for supporting us. It means the world to us. So, join us next week for part one of A Storm of Swords Sample 1, in which we have arrived at last at a top five chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. As Samuel Tarley and the Night's Watch flee the fists of the first men with death nipping at their heels. Is that too, too dramatic? I don't think so. Not for this chapter, absolutely. This is this is one of the contenders for, for the greatest chapter in the series for sure. And like Jeff said, we're going to be doing it in two parts. We're going to be splitting it up into roughly the opening with Sam's, you know, sobbing and walking through the snow and his first couple of brief flashbacks to the fist and then have a second episode that focuses on the horror that went down at the fist of the first man. So this, this is one of the great chapters in the series. I'm so excited to do it with you, sir. It's going to be a good time. I cannot wait for this chapter. Oh, I'm so excited. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to Sarah for joining us and we'll see you next week for A Storm of Swords, Samwell 1.